0: Hi, I'm Dr. Jennifer Jones, your host for The Secret Life of Neurohospitalist, a podcast where we explore the nuances of doing this kind of work and caring for this specific patient population. For this episode, I spoke to my colleague, Dr. Nicole Tweedy, a return guest, who I'm always grateful to for her willingness to participate in her thoughtful and insightful contributions to the topic at hand, which today is functional neurology and psychogenic non-epileptic seizures to be precise. Prior to my formal training in neurology, I knew very little about functional medical illnesses, which every specialty has some variant of, as I understand it, though I don't know what a functional psychiatric illness would look like since it would be, paradoxically, a psychiatric illness, just not the one the patient thought. Anyway, the entire extent of my knowledge on this type of thing prior to my medical education came from a talk show, possibly the Phil Donahue show, which showed a mother captured on camera harming her child, a case of Munchausen by proxy, I admit I was fascinated and disturbed, and it made for good, shocking daytime viewing. And certainly, I've had patients who were clearly and consciously manipulating for secondary gain with non-epileptic seizures. But frank malingering or factitious events are not what we're talking about here. Functional neurological disorders are subconscious and out of the patient's control by definition. For anyone who has ever cared for a patient suffering with non-epileptic seizures and who has witnessed the confusion and helplessness that it can leave in the aftermath, is clearly something that needs an appropriate and effective intervention to offer. So these are some of the things that Dr. Nicole Tweedy and I cover in this conversation. Functional neurological disorders are thought to be one in six referrals to neurology. Wow. Yes. And it says it up to 10 to 15 per 100,000 in the population prevalence. And that's just FND in general. Yeah. Um, psych- psychogenic non-epileptic seizures said it was like 2 to 33 per 100,000 people. Yeah. So, I mean, these are common, yes, yeah. as we know. Right. So, I wonder
1: on the inpatient side, you know, those numbers yeah. are probably, probably a lot more referrals on the outpatient side than what we see inpatient, but we certainly see...
0: A lot of. Right. Like in the inpatient hospitalization is probably pretty high. Yeah. From our just anecdotal experience. Right. Exactly.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) On a busy day, you're starting the floor. You've got your list and you're going through things. You've got a patient who's been monitored for 24 hours, has had two or three captured events. They're non-epileptic. You don't know the patient yet. You're just going to go into the room. Next patient's a new brain tumor, had a seizure. Which one do you prefer to see? the brain tumor with a seizure <laughs> yes i know right we all are just kind of like oh maybe somebody else will do that
1: yeah well i think a lot of it too is just i think from a time perspective i mean depending on kind of what my flow is during the day it's like i know that that's going to be much more straightforward in yes. the sense of like we know exactly what's going on i can tell them straightforward like you have epilepsy from this brain tumor you need anti-seizure medications um, whereas I feel like the psychogenic non-epileptic seizure patient, I I'm probably going to spend more time with them, kind of really explaining the diagnosis, digging in with them mm-hmm. about you know their past and what this looks like going forward, and it's just a much more in-depth conversation. Where I'd rather just be like, let me just get this one out of the way, you know, yeah. the, the seizure one, the epileptic one, so that I can
0: have some be time present. Yes, yeah, exactly. yeah. Right, right. And I mean, because if I think about it, with both of those. Those are both uncomfortable right. as a provider, right? right? It's, uh, it's terribly difficult sometimes to be telling people you've got a brain tumor right. and you have seizures and right. now you know, you've you got your life from now on is medical. Th- those are uncomfortable conversations, both, right. but somehow I think part of it is having answers in one. Yes. You know, you've got this. Here's what we do next. Right. Here's a, a much you know, clearer yes, plan. Yes. Right, right.
1: They've probably had a lot of other people coming into the room already. Like there's probably an oncologist involved mm-hmm.
0: in you
1: know, um, other people involved. And so there, there's already a lot of prep, you know what I mean? And so right. as I'm coming in, it's like, yes, we were expecting this. We've been, I've been on these anti-seizure medications because I know that I had a seizure. You know, it's more right. just kind of like tidying things up versus like, okay, I got to really right. see where this other, you know, non-epileptic patient is even at. Like, has anyone even told them anything about, you know what I mean? Yeah. It just seems like a much more...
0: Like how many times have you walked out of the room and heard them go, well, they don't know. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. How do you present it to the patient?
1: I don't know if I have like a standard approach. I think it's a little bit different depending on the patient. And so I kind of tailor it depending on partially, you know, I like to just start by saying like, has anyone even mentioned this diagnosis to you before? Or like, what have people told you about what they think is going on? And usually I like to just kind of gauge where they're at because sometimes that will set the tone, right? Like if they say, if I can clearly see documented in the chart, like we're referring this patient for psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. Like this is what we anticipate is going on, blah, blah, blah. And then I go into the room and the patient's just like, yeah, they tell me they don't know. Or like they're telling me I'm crazy or they think I'm faking it or whatever. Like that's a much different tone and conversation that I need to start with than someone who goes like, yeah, I've heard that these may be stress related and, and that, you know, I'm, I'm working with a therapist and, you know, we're just trying to make sure that there's not right. medication or something, you know? So I kind of like to gauge where they're at first. Um, and then that will kind of allow me to know like, okay, I'm starting from scratch in this conversation and really need to like potentially undo some yeah poor conversation that has happened
0: Previously. Which how that is an uphill battle. What's yes. your approach in that in that first scenario where they where they're like, well, they're telling me I'm crazy, but I know it's something.
1: Yeah, yeah. Usually I try and validate like, you know, I it is something. Like your symptoms are real. Mm-hmm. Like no one is saying that these are not real symptoms and that they're not extremely distressing, but it's just not an electrical problem in the brain. It's not an ictal seizure that we can treat with medication. Um, and so I try to just kind of validate and, you know, I, I never argue with them if that's their interpretation of what a doctor previously told them, you know, I can't go back and either fix that conversation or really know exactly what you yeah. said. But I usually just try and say like, you know, your symptoms are real and kind of give them that validation of like, we don't think you're crazy. We know you're not faking it. It's completely involuntary. You have no control over right. that. Right. And how scary is that? You know what I mean? Just kind of give them that reassurance. Like, I can see why this would be an extremely distressing and frustrating thing to feel like you don't have answers, you know?
0: And then to be told, and, well, it's, you know, somehow just because you're psychologically unhealthy. Right. Because that always feels like somehow that's a choice.
1: Well, and I feel like, (laughs) I feel like a lot of times, too, um, we don't really have a great terminology. And I think that puts a lot of patients off as well. Like... On the one side, I can call it a psychogenic non-epileptic seizure, but then that has seizure. Right. And then, like, obviously that would be very understandable for a patient to misinterpret that and say, well, you know, they said seizure, so it must be a seizure. And then, you know, on the other hand, we have non-epileptic behavioral events, which then also just suggests that they're doing it on purpose or it's somehow a behavioral problem. Right. And that's an unfortunate thing to tell a patient too. So I feel like part of it is that we just don't really have a great, term that seems validating without having some sort of stigma to it yeah and i know um melanie dr greenway one of our other partners um she likes to call them um non-epileptic non-epileptic attacks oh um or use some other word like you know because i i had a patient i've heard events yes right exactly i had a patient the other day who i was seeing in the epilepsy monitoring unit and um she was actually a, a retired pa So obviously very, like, medically Mm -hmm. knowledgeable, you know? And um, when I was kind of explaining the diagnosis to her, she was like, well, if they're not seizures, like, how do I explain this to other people? You know what I mean? Like, it has the word seizure. People have been saying non-epileptic seizure, but that still has seizure in it. And that term is confusing to me. Like, I don't know how to explain that to friends and family when they're like, you know, what's (laughs) going on? Yeah. And so we kind of talked about, like, maybe some other terms could be, you know, spells or events or attacks or episodes or, or something. I, I
0: often hear patients say stress seizures. Yeah. And that that kind of makes some sense because it looks like a seizure to them, but they're stress seizures. Right.
1: Although I, I also find that can sometimes be confusing too because like stress can also trigger. I mean, it's like one of the most common triggers for yeah. epileptic seizures too. You yeah. Know I mean, is, you yeah, know, yeah high stress. So it's just, I think that there's, there's just this, confusion about the terms and everything we Mm -hmm. use too and then a lot of times I struggle because I feel like then it comes off as almost like we don't understand even when we do you know so then the patient sees it as like well they don't know or well well, they're not sure Um, whereas it's really like well I mean we do know and at this point it's not even necessarily a diagnosis of exclusion anymore like you know functional disorders used to be like Oh, you have to exclude everything yeah, else, yeah, you know? Yeah. Uh-huh. And then the poor patients, they've had this whole workup. And then, of course, at the end, they're going to be like, well, they just didn't find anything. Like, yeah. well, obviously, they just don't know what's going on. When it's like, well, we do, but it's just very hard to explain. <laughs> and right, to, right. You know, so um, it's just, you know, it's difficult for us, I think, as providers. And it's difficult for patients. And it's just, it's just a hard... Difficult
0: for And I often go in there... Okay, so one of the things I was thinking about was that I'll, when I'm explaining it, I do similarly, like probably most of us, you know, try to emphasize that this is not willful. Mm-hmm. You're not able to stop it or you would have. Right. You know, I usually say you wouldn't wa- probably want to be right here in right. this hospital. Right. And, and then, so I, I say to the families, you know, it's very important to know that they are no more able to manage this than they are an epileptic seizure. Right. From their perspective, same difference. And because of, you know, there is this implicit, judgment in right, a way. Right. And and what do you what is that judgment when we look at it, like when we think about what it is. It's like I was thinking if I if I'm thinking what's what's the underlying the judgment, it would probably be either one, like a psychologically manipulative type of person mm-hmm. who's trying to get attention, which nobody wants to be accused of, right? right, right. And then secondly it would be either maybe somebody lacking a whole bunch of insight.
1: Right, right.
0: You know, and then like when you just said that about having a medical person, I do find there are certain people it's more challenging for me to come into the room. You know, maybe men in some ways, mm-hmm. you know they're just going to be less likely to accept right. it. yep. Um, and they're often sort of firemen or... Men have been manly men, you know, don't really get involved in their emotions. And so then you're going to say you're having psychological troubles to them, you know, and then it just doesn't, they never accept it. Right. right? Right. And so, or like older people, like very old people trying, you know, when they've had these weird spells, you know, somebody in their eighties and you're newly diagnosing that, which in some ways is kind of weird that it doesn't happen more often when people get demented. Right. Maybe the if i think about my the pathophysiology it would probably come from like learned avoidant psychological defenses that are you know ultimately just constructed in such a way that they collapse at some point like mm-hmm. you know you can only avoid uncomfortable memories and feelings and yes. experiences for so long before right. you're going to have to face them or something right. that's sort of how i present it to people but then i sometimes also feel like i say that in front of families and it's a little bit of an accusation do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. we know that like at least half the people have had some trauma or something, right, right. and you're like, well, it could come from something bad that happened to you. You're right. like, <clears> throat> 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 you know? mom, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. Uh, so talk, talk to me about any of that, that that you want to.
1: Well, I try and encourage them that um, I think every life includes trauma and suffering. You know, like this. I does, might use that. Yeah. This <laughs> this <laughs> does not have to be like, yeah, they were abused as a child or that there was, you know, some clear, you know, severe trauma where they should have been taken away from the home or something like that. It can just be, you know, we're all, especially as children, you know, we're all just under these extreme psychological stressors as we kind of develop into like, who do we want to be and all these pressures from other people. And, you know, then you kind of grow up and you get to be an adult and maybe life didn't turn out to what you thought it was going to be. Or you you know, had children really young, you know, and then have stress from that. And it's like every step along the way, these stressors just come up. And I, I try and emphasize that it doesn't necessarily have to be some like, that's good. severe yeah. traumatic event, but just life is full of suffering and, and trauma. And these things can, you know, come up at any time. And you know, a lot of times, especially when we talk about people being older, you know, like these things are cumulative, like, as you <laughs> age, you know, you just more and more of these things happen and there's you know joy and happiness and love and great things along the way but there's also you know suffering and hard times too yeah and i just think as a society we are not good at dealing with that like it's all very you just like brush it under the rug or you know put your smile on and and keep going and it's like if you don't deal with these things they're gonna come out in some way you either need to address them psychologically at some point or yeah your brain is gonna you know, start to kind of go into a distraction mode or a distress mode or something, you know? Yeah,
0: you can't just avoid it. I mean, I've found myself wondering that before, too. Like, I wonder if some people do just avoid discomfort, you know, I guess, uncomfortable psychological experiences all their life Mm -hmm. and never have consequences. I don't know. I mean, it certainly doesn't seem like it from what we see.
1: Right. Well, (laughs) and it's interesting, too, because I feel like sort of alluding to what you were saying before is this concept of, like, a lot of the people that I see who have these types of disorders are very type a type of people who are in like very high stress jobs or you know there there is a lot of stress in their lives but the way that they manage it is just by pushing it down and saying I have to keep yeah yeah I have to keep going through and and when you ask them like do you have any stress in your life you know it's just like well yeah but it's just a normal amount yeah, of Yeah, I'm a right?
0: high-functioning, accomplished right. person.
1: Exactly. <laughs> but then, too, it's like, I have no more stress now than I did before, you know? Yeah. And then it's just kind of like, well, at some point, you reach that threshold where it's just too much. Yeah, you know I mean? yeah,
0: that's right. Um, And if they say they don't have stress, then yeah, you're just like, that. okay, are you alive? <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, and then I think a lot of times, too, like you were talking about with patients and families and stuff, too... you know there's a lot of sort of like I was talking about earlier where trying to tell your family you know what you think is going on or what's happening to you you know there's this sense of like I always you know the the, I have had a few patients come in who are you know have non-epileptic events and maybe their family is like very involved and sometimes that can almost be a red flag too of kind of this like over involved yeah over pressure Mm -hmm. or like this needs to stop, it's too much, it's stressing everyone else out, like, you, this has to be fixed, you know, and then I'm like, that's not helpful either, right, right, so there's, like, you have your own internal stress, but then there's also these stressors from outside, too, that you don't always have control over or can't fix either, and I think a lot of times, too, what you were talking about earlier with, like, the stigma around it, too, is almost just the sense of, like, I have some flaw where I can't manage my stress or there's something wrong with me where like I, you know, have been unable to just like manage or cope or whatever.
0: Yeah, there does need to be some way to say it to a family member. Like right. this is why I've been in the hospital for two days yes. having right. attacks. Right, right. And it shouldn't be like because I'm just so weak, I can't handle my stress. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I hope that that's not how it comes out when we explain it to patients. But I could see how, one, if you don't really take the time to fully explain exactly what it is and, and validate it, um, that, you know, patients are going to kind of make their own conclusions about what you're yeah. saying about them and Well, and about I think maybe if
0: you take the time even, that sometimes right. they just are kind of like, well, it just turns out they think I'm crazy. Right. No right. matter what you said, you know.
1: And then I always, I always try and encourage, too, because I'm like, I think sometimes I get this sense from a patient that they are disappointed that I'm telling them that they don't have epilepsy, right? Like they want to have epilepsy because then one, that feels real and validating and and two, they can take a medication and fix it, potentially cure it and just move on, you know? And then when I tell them, you know, talk about these non-epileptic events and the process of healing that and, you know, the long recovery for that. And that I can't just give you a medication to fix that, you know, for a lot of people that's extremely, Disappointing and frustrating because yeah. they're like I can't keep living like this I can't keep I'm I'm suffering my family is suffering you know and it's like I would love to just give you a medication and, and we could all just move on and you know you could be healed but I think that a lot of times too it's just um, you know some of it is just the denial of like feeling helpless you know and feeling like yeah. well, well I, I don't know how I'm going to get better you know
0: well, I've I've um, wondered that too. Like, I mean, I often will start off with that and say to the patients, "Well, in a, in a, you know, it, in a way, it's it's not good news because I could just give you a medicine for epilepsy, and most of the time, that's going to work, and stuff like that. And then the other thing that's tricky, although I don't tend to belabor it with people, but is that their their prognosis is not even that good. Right. Right. Like it's sort of you know surprising in a way because yes. we think of it kind of benign, whatever, it is benign because it's not, you know, a progressive or relentless disease, but they keep having it. Like, they they often do keep having them and can yeah. be disabled from exactly. them.
1: Exactly, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think, too, um, sort of like what you were saying, that I actually sometimes spin it the other way where I say this actually is really good news in the sense that, like, your brain looks totally healthy and normal. Yeah. Like, you have a normal MRI. You have a normal EEG. Like, you have the potential... And even though I know that they're probably not going to do well, just statistically speaking, I try and set them up to at least feel optimistic that like you have the potential to be lead a totally normal life and get through this because like all of your tests look really good. Your brain looks very healthy. Like this is all very good news. Right. Um, But yes, at the same time, it's like, you know from a patient perspective they're like no this is bad news because i just yeah. want to take a medicine and like be done you know
0: and what do you tell them when they say well okay it, like, okay so we're getting ready to let this person go from the hospital and their family's there and the mother's there and, the, and they say well what should we do when this happens again and you know that it is going to happen again what, what's your answer i mean obviously you don't say bring them back in but um what do you what do you typically tell them you know yeah
1: if there's something abnormal about it like for example if it's going on for a very very long time or if you know they're they've fallen and injured themselves because they were like standing or doing whatever yeah. if there's something unusual or some some injury or something that happens like absolutely bring them back but i otherwise try and encourage them not you know, I don't want to say, like, there's nothing we can do for you here in the hospital, right? Because then that sounds extremely dismal for the patient to be like, well, don't come in because I can't give you Ativan and I can't do these things because yeah. they're not epileptic, so I, I can't fix you, you know? But then also trying to encourage them that, like, you know, I think for a lot of people, each time this happens, at least just from the patients that I've taken care of, I get this general sense that they're this there's this fear of, like, I'm injuring my brain every time this happens. Like and just that even this is, reassuring yes, them that Yes, right. Like, not, this is yeah. a dangerous thing to continue on. And, mm-hmm. you know, especially after they've been in the hospital and we've been monitoring their vitals and doing all these things during these events, I try and reassure them that, like, you know, we had you on all of these machines. Your brain activity was normal during the event. Your oxygen stayed normal. Your blood pressure was okay. Like, yeah. this is not a dangerous thing obviously if you fall and hurt yourself or something you can have an injury but generally speaking like you're not causing harm to your brain there isn't any injury related to this and so just kind of trying to provide reassurance to them and the family that like it will stop eventually like even if they have a few episodes at home like as long as they respond to questions in between right exactly and as long as you're kind of keeping them safe away from things where they're going to injure themselves um that you know generally speaking, it should, you know, should stop eventually. And and with the hope being that once they get involved with, you know, therapy and and treatments and everything, that things will kind of abate with time.
0: Um, Or they'll learn some skills. That's what I figure, even if they don't go away. Because, I I mean, I, I think I remember being pretty surprised learning that, that even with, like, effective therapies, they reduce the frequency like 50%. And they still continue to have events. Um, the other thing, this just made me think it would be nice if we had something, right? Like that we could do that wasn't just sort of, uh, you know, Ativan sort of taking the edge off for a minute or something. But right. And that made me think of maybe, you know, how the psychedelics are becoming mm-hmm. and, and like maybe ketamine. Wouldn't that be good if we could just have something like that would truly work like a ketamine treatment for non-epileptic spells, <laughs> You know, you're getting admitted for this this experience that's going to cure you. Like whether that's psilocybin or something like that, you know. Because, I mean, it has it in PTSD and Mm -hmm. some of this has to be a similar mechanism. Right, right. You know?
1: Yeah.
0: So maybe there's something like that that would be a, a hospital, like an acute hospital treatment that one day we'll be talking about.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the things that is most Frustrating um, and disappointing I think for a lot of patients at least that I hear from is like just this lack of I feel like no one cares. No one really wants to help me. You know I go to this one doctor and they say like I can't help you and you know can't see you anymore. I don't have anything to offer and then you know I'm interested in CBT but my insurance doesn't cover it or I live out in middle of Appalachia. There, yeah. Like I, I there are no therapists out here doing that and yeah. so There's this, there's this perceived sense of like, nobody takes ownership, but then also like a true lack of resources, I think, even for the patients that I have who are like, I would love to engage in therapy, (laughs) like I want to get better. And then they keep coming back to the hospital and I'm like, have you started therapy? And they're like, I'm, and I never know how hard they're really trying or what they're actually doing to, you know, try and assist with this. I've had a lot of people who want to engage and want to get better, but either, you know, their neurologist dropped them, they're psychiatrist or psychologist dropped them where they couldn't even find one. Yeah. You know, their PCP is kind of like, I got nothing else to offer. And then just kind of feeling like we as a system have failed them. Yeah, like
0: what's the likelihood that they have good insurance that covers their cognitive behavioral sessions, which are a couple times a week probably, right? Isn't that a regular? Yeah, it's pretty
1: regular. You
0: got to do that. You got to commit. What's your policy with non epileptic spells and driving?
1: I mean, I usually tell them like, If they're telling me they can't remember the event and they're saying that they lost consciousness and have no awareness, I feel like I have to say, like, that sounds extremely dangerous if that were to happen while you were behind the wheel of a car. Like, I don't know technically whether or not they you know, truly can't drive under the same, you know, requirements that we have for epileptic patients. But it's always interesting to me that we have, you know, we talk about this with epilepsy all the time, but we have patients out there who have syncope and arrhythmias and stuff and are passing out. And I don't think anybody's talking to them about like, you probably shouldn't be driving. You know, my sense is always just like, if you're telling me there's loss of consciousness and loss of awareness, you know, regardless of the etiology, whether it's neurological or cardiac or Mm -hmm. whatever, I'm just like, that sounds like you could hurt yourself or somebody else if that <laughs> happened while you were behind the wheel of a car, you yeah. know? And it's probably more just for protection for myself.
0: Well, and I think most of them are probably
1: still driving. But at least yeah. I feel like I've told them, like, that's pretty scary. Yeah. Consider getting a ride or being a passenger when you can. Like, don't but drive. But, you know, it somewhere. is like
0: you when, when we're talking about what we're telling the patient, you know, we don't know why. I mean, if they say... How does this happen? I don't know the substrate in the brain that does this, but it's psychological from mm-hmm. trauma, blah, 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 PTSD-like. And then, you know, we don't know why. It's, everything's normal. You know, you need some form of vague therapy that I can't quite send you to because nobody really is offering it for any insurance. Right. But you, you shouldn't drive. Like I can imagine how that is very hard to hear and explain right. yeah. to your surrounding community.
1: It is heartbreaking, though, because I've, you know, like you said, as a neurologist, you know, we see these patients a lot, but there are limited things of what I can offer. Yeah. The most important thing, I think, is for the patient to have a team and feel like they are supported. You know, when you're so busy in the outpatient clinics and you've, you know, you're backed up and you've got these patients who have other, you know, conditions where they need frequent monitoring and they're coming in and to fill a space in your clinic with someone where you're like... I don't actually have anything to offer you. I'm just, But it's
0: also, there's people like with epilepsy who can't get their meds refilled or whatever, you know, so it feels like, okay, that's not the priority. Right.
1: But like I had a patient who was referred a couple of weeks ago, referred by a neurologist. This patient was believed to have both epileptic and non-epileptic events. It turns out only non-epileptic. And I called the referring doctor and was like, we have a diagnosis. We've been able to characterize his spells. They're all non-epileptic another thing that gets confusing speaking of that, is you know but he does have ptsd and so he was on valproic acid for a mood disorder you know yeah. like, so then there's the confusion of like yes. but i'm on an anti-seizure medicine mm-hmm. and then there's this kind of understanding of like well i want you to stay on that because it's helping with the mood but i don't want you to think about it as an anti-seizure medicine because that's not why you're on it the doc was like okay great i guess i don't need to see him again you at least need to see him like you referred him yeah for this like you need to at least see him one more time and like close the loop and let him know like I'm here if you need me or whatever but and you know and he was already worried about leaving the hospital and feeling like how am I going to continue to get support like what's going to happen when I leave the hospital like how am I going to get through yeah. this or whatever and then to just be like oh remember that doc that was taking care of you before like you they're You're not going to see them. you anymore you know
0: yeah, when I think of it like in a different system, like say if it was heart, you know, cardiologist, somebody having chest pain, and then the, chest, the cardiologist is like, okay, test, 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 done, not it. Um, that does seem fair. Like right. maybe we as neurologists, because it is a more nebulous existence sometimes, or things like dementia, you know, things that are a little vaguer, you would never expect a cardiologist to follow up on, you know, chest pain. Right or even palpitations, but we do, and we probably should. As
1: neurologists, I agree. I feel like we're inherently just... It seems impossible to ever be done with, yeah. with a patient, right? Like, as soon yes. as you're like, well, I worked that We're gonna out. We're going to sign and,
0: off. It's like, is that okay? Right, exactly. Don't they need us? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And they're
1: like, but because neurology can do anything. Yeah. Like, neurological disorders can do anything, you know? And so I feel like, yeah, they always get these workups at other places. Like, card. you know, they have syncope or some, yeah. some episode like that. And then cardiology does their full workup and then they're like, not a cardiac problem then they're like okay neurology and then they come over to us and then somehow we're like the last you know like yeah. if we give up then they've lost all
0: hope that like okay well,
1: nobody's we're, ever gonna... we're
0: just gonna stay on board because we should care
1: right exactly <laughs> yes i know it's it's um or even in the outpatient setting you know i would have these patients that probably should have been a red flag for me too of you know patients who have functional neurological disorders as well as this like Constant every time you've worked up and solved one issue, or not even solved, but just worked it up to its end and said, "Like I haven't found anything pathological. Like all of your tests are very reassuring." Then the next visit, it's like, "Okay, well now I'm dizzy," and it just seems like there's always something. There
0: is, and I think a they are misrepresented, not just functional neurological, but somatic disorders Mm -hmm. of every system are you know heavily misrepresented across all medicine. And then secondly, it, even once you've diagnosed it, it tends to morph into something else, whether it's something else right. neurological, you'll eventually see them back and they'll be like, well, it turned out I had filled right. in the, the blank, right. whatever. It could be five years, 10 years later, but they've just been circling every medical system. Right. right. And then they find something eventually, right. maybe small, maybe not pre-diabetes or whatever, you know, and they kind of go like, so you missed that.
1: Right. <laughs> I know. Well, I think, too, um, as medical providers, you know, I do think that there are the knowledge that we have of, you know, the human body and all of these conditions has obviously grown exponentially. And there are things that we know about now as conditions and disorders that we didn't know about previously, And so there's always the potential that there are diagnoses that we're missing that we just haven't discovered yet, you know? Yeah. But I also feel like on the flip side of that, there's probably a lot of people walking around out there who have nothing medically wrong with them, whether or not it's a neurological complaint, like a functional neurological disorder or some sort of GI complaint or cardiac complaint or something like that. And I think we as doctors are not very good at saying like, we haven't found anything, like I think this may be psychological. You know? Yeah. And I feel like somehow the neurologists are the only one who says that. Yeah. You know? Um and there's but there probably are a lot of people out there who we feel like we have to label it as some sort of disorder or diagnosis when really I think a lot of people out there are just stressed and suffering and mm-hmm. having a really hard time and we don't encourage people to, you know, their emotions enough or do therapy or find other ways you know what i mean and yeah so i think there's probably a lot of people that we label as having disorders because we feel like we have to put a label on it you know what i mean
0: and i mean that makes me think also about well i can think of one over the years and then i've seen it in the literature where people ha- can present with um, non-epileptic spells like i can think of a case where cap you know emu monitoring captured events And even the clinical bedside looked non-epileptic, you know. And then, you know, maybe a few months later, coming back, a young woman, you know. Mm -hmm. And often people's lives are kind of messy anyway. So then you go, well, you know, it seemed like she was a mess. Mm It makes sense, you know. Mm -hmm. And then um, coming back maybe half a year or something later with uh, autoimmune encephalopathy. Mm. And like a, you know, whatever, perineoplastic or something. And that's reported. So that's oh, interesting wow. too, right? Like that would imply some sort of pathophysiology organically. Mm-hmm. Psychogenic seizures presenting as the onset of perineoplastics, like probably NMTA. Oh, wow. Yeah, in young women. So it's like you don't want to all of a sudden start thinking every person with psychogenic yes. is that. But right. that would point to some some organic you know, thing for this weirdly nebulous psychological mm-hmm. existence of mm-hmm. ours.
1: I don't know when we use the term functional trying to understand what that even means right of just like well the <laughs> yeah. structurally it's normal and electrically electrically it's normal your brain but like functionally, there's some dysfunction there. But yeah. even that is a very just kind of nebulous term of like... That
0: really is. Right. If anything, it should be dysfunctional. Right, exactly.
1: Because <laughs> I'm like, usually when something's functional, that's that's good. <laughs> that means it's functioning well.
0: Like <laughs> Yeah, and so what do you think about... Okay, do you think there is any difference... In the underlying mechanisms that might lead to to the different manifestations of functional neurological things like some people can't walk right they Mm -hmm. get like pseudo paralysis or something you know whether it's pseudo stroke you know how many times have you seen somebody who's like in their 40s who's had three strokes and no changes on their mri and even been treated and and they're functional Mm -hmm. or um or, you know, or, or so there's obviously seizures are the, probably the most common, but we see a lot of functional stroke, functional gait disorders, movement disorders. Right. I wonder, do you have any feel or thoughts about whether there's different things that lead to different ways of it coming out?
1: You know, the only thing that I've sometimes made connections with, with patients is that they have a family member or somebody that they know who has had like let's say they come in with weakness or something their mom had a stroke That's or good or something like that and so they've kind of seen that what that looks like how that presents And maybe it's something that they're even afraid of, right? Maybe they're even like, oh my God, what if I have a stroke? Like I now, you know, my mom has a stroke. Is that going to happen to me? And so sometimes I can make connections or they'll say like, oh, I have, you know, a cousin with epilepsy or my my sibling has epilepsy or something like that. And so it's something that they've seen before Mm -hmm. and that maybe the other person has gotten like medicalized or gotten a lot of attention or been sick. From. Yeah. And, and I think that their brain is able to kind of interpret that, you know, yeah, something that, that it can sense. mimic or, mm-hmm. and then I think once it's happened and you've gotten into the medical system for that, I think it just becomes, I don't want to say a habit, but like each time you're stressed and something's going to happen, it's going to be Continue something, to kind of recur yeah, with the makes one that sense. you've had before.
0: You're right. Like, probably it is something that even if just subconsciously they've right. seen, seen before. before. Right.
1: Or may, And maybe even something that they're particularly yeah. afraid of.
0: And, you know, interestingly, I looked up what it whether this is like a uniquely Western phenomenon. Hmm. But it isn't. It's everywhere. And all, like, in every kind of, you know, um, circumstances of life. And I, I wonder if it... I mean, it makes me think about like the hysterical women passing out, mm-hmm. you know, Freud's days mm-hmm. and stuff. And if it's if it's different like manifestations of functional stuff dependent on the culture, you know. Yes, right. I'm sure it probably is. Like what would what would come up, you know? Right,
1: right. Or <laughs> or yeah, or this sense of like what is normal, you know what I mean, within that, you know, like how yeah. are other people, the people that you know. Yeah. What do they yeah. look like and how do they present? Yeah. Kind of like you said, kind of taking that on. As something that you've seen and familiar with, and then it just kind of spreads. Yeah, yeah.
0: or something, like, almost like the way that hysteria can spread, right. you know.
1: What I do, I do tell my patients um, after they've been in the hospital, uh, in the epilepsy monitoring unit, and are getting ready to leave, you know, I am very clear that, like, medication is not going to fix you. And this is going to be a long road. Like this is not going to be an overnight fix. All of these things that have led to this point have been building up for a very long time. I don't want them to, like we talked about earlier, a lot of them will never be cured. But um, I don't want them to lose hope that we have the wrong diagnosis or something has been missed. I think that's where a lot of the like difficulty in getting better is just there's just this sense that like, You know, I'm doing the therapy and I'm not getting better. I've been doing it for a few weeks and I'm still having these events. Like, they must have missed something. There must be something else still going on, you know? And so I try to encourage them that it's going to take a long time and they have to do the work. They are the only ones who can do the work. And, you know, that's, I think, partially on us as a medical system if we don't have the resources available for them. But I do think that with some effort and encouragement, there are a lot of resources out there that can be accessed whether it's you know remotely or something like that you know and so the patient does have to take that first step of one acknowledging okay i'm gonna believe that this is the right diagnosis and i'm gonna at least give it a try
0: I was thinking about how occasionally I will sardonically tell a patient whose diagnosis or course has been atypical and challenging that they're an interesting case, alluding to the fact that it really isn't good to be an interesting case. But is there some truth in the implication that the only truly interesting patients are those who are unwittingly interesting without wishing to be? For me, when a patient comes in saying how so many doctors have been confounded by them and how they've been to so many specialists who have thrown their hands up in confusion, I am immediately suspicious of a personality disorder. In other words, if their demands for my attention is too extracting, it's often a flag. I will decide who gets the special attention and who doesn't, and the patient should not demand it of me. And I think that sometimes the patients with conversional or functional neurological illnesses can feel like that. They often tell stories of what other doctors thought or said, which is frustratingly undermining or irrelevant and possibly not even accurate. It can be hard to get clear answers to questions around the events, and it all just takes so much time. But I have to remind myself that to give the person the time and attention they require, after all, they're in the hospital because of uncontrollable, disabling events, is maybe the best thing that I can offer. And even for people who make me feel like they need more than I'm able to give, it's possible that, for some, maybe the clear gaze of someone who cares and understands is healing. I was reminded of this when I recently had a routine physician appointment. I realized as I sat on the edge of the examining table with my doctor's cool hands on my shoulders as she listened to me breathe, how soothing it can feel to receive that particular attention to my life and my health. It's powerful stuff. Well, that's it for this podcast. Don't forget to like, rate, and share if you enjoyed this. If you have comments or questions, please email us at Secret Life Neuro at gmail.com.